One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around 450 years ago, in the years 1560 to 1614, there lived a Hungarian aristocrat called Erzsébet Bathory, known more commonly in English as Elizabeth Bathory, who is said to have murdered more than 600 young women. Erzsébet's life and actions have been sensationalized in books, film and music, in which she's typically given names such as the Princess of Blood and Countess Dracula, to this day, rather distastefully to my mind, she has two Guinness World Records, one for the most prolific female murderer and the other for the most prolific murderer of the Western world. But is it true? In this explainer, I'm going to examine the evidence for Ejabat being a serial killer. I'll start with the victims and consider Ejabat's modus operandi. If you're a little squeamish, you might not want to listen to this while you're eating. Then I'll consider her motive, opportunity and means and reflect on the evidence that puts her in the frame for the deaths of so many young women. And finally, I'll think about the case against Ejabat being a killer. You won't be surprised to know that there are some problems with the evidence and that at least one person had the motive, opportunity and means to frame her. What emerges is a truly harrowing story with many unexplained endings as well as some fascinating political intrigue involving that most powerful of early modern European families, the Habsburgs. So if you're steeled and ready, let's begin. Ejebat was born on the 7th of August, 1560, to Jörg and Anna Bathory in Nirbator, northeastern Hungary. Her parents were Hungarian aristocrats from two different branches of the Bathory family. Her father, Jörg, was related to the Voida of Transylvania, the highest-ranking military, judicial and administrative officials in the kingdom, appointed by the Prince of Transylvania, and her mother, Anna's brothers, were also Voida at one time or other. 16th century Hungary was an area where Ottoman Turks vied for power with Habsburg monarchs. And much of what we today think of as Romania and Hungary were contested areas, with borders frequently changing. Once independent areas like Transylvania came under Hungary's power, and Erzsébat's parents and their families played a game of political chess, sometimes siding with the Habsburgs and other times with the Ottomans. We know little about Erzsébat's upbringing, Although tens of preserved letters from adulthood indicate that she was literate and spoke Hungarian, Slovak, Greek, Latin and German, 
Children of the aristocracy were given a formal education, but still her linguistic abilities are somewhat surprising for a woman of this era. A painting of Erzsabat in the Hungarian National Gallery shows a striking young woman with smooth, creamy skin, a high forehead, a straight nose, large, dark eyes and dark, possibly black hair. She holds the viewer's gaze. She doesn't appear stern or confrontational, but then early modern portraiture is not a place to look for character. When she was 12 years old, Erge Bat was formally engaged to marry 17-year-old Count Ferenc Nadosti, a member of one of the most influential and wealthy noble families in Hungary. A year later, she was sent to live with Ferenc's family to learn how to manage a household from her future mother-in-law. The pair were formally married in 1575, just before Ejebat turned 15 and Ferenc 20, and Ejebat became a countess. The Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian II, unable to travel safely from Prague through lands occupied by the Ottoman Turks, sent an official delegation bearing a letter, lavish gifts such as a silver goblet, and told the newlyweds that his son, Rudolf, King of Hungary, would also be sending silver goblets. As for Ferenc, he gave his new wife nothing less than the Gothic castle of Cheta in Upper Hungary with its 17 surrounding villages. Within three years of being married, Ferenc was made commander of the Hungarian troops supporting Rudolf, the former king of Hungary, who had now become Holy Roman Emperor following the death of Maximilian. As a result, Ferenc spent much of his time away fighting the Ottoman Turks, leaving 18-year-old Erzsébet running the family estates. This was no mean feat. Ferenc's estates lay on the road to Vienna, and one of his castles was near to the border that divided royal Hungary from Ottoman-occupied Hungary. So the lands had to be well guarded and cautiously managed. Accounts reveal that the Countess visited each of the estates at least once a year and while there consulted with court officials, dictated and wrote letters, paid bills, reviewed documents, made visits around the manor, arbitrated disputes and received visitors. Erzsébat's own letters tell of how she intervened on behalf of destitute women, including one that had been assaulted by marauding Ottoman Turks. So upstanding was the Countess that a judge wrote to his own daughter commenting that she should be more like Erzsébet. To understand Erzsébet's alleged crimes, we need to jump forwards in time to 1610 the year in which proceedings against Ejabat began. She was 50 years old. The year before, in 1609, Ejabat had established a gynecaeum, an academy for imparting etiquette to young girls. Members of the nobility and gentry sent their daughters to be educated by the countess. But in 1610, the gynecaeum caused concern. Young girls had gone missing. King Matthias of Hungary, who had succeeded his brother, Rudolf, received at least a dozen complaints from members of the nobility demanding an investigation. Matthias commissioned his most senior judge, Judge Tuzo, the very same judge who had implored his daughter to be more like Ejebet, to lead an investigation. Fifty-two people were interviewed in secret, without Ejebet's knowledge. She was, after all, a member of the high nobility herself. Tuzo was sent to query whether, through some sort of evil spirit, 
Ejabet has set aside her reverence for God and man and has killed in cruel and various ways many girls and virgins and other women. 34 of these witness testimonies were gathered by Andrash Kersdury from members of the communities in which Ejabet lived, including nobility, a church provost, a tax collector and a pastor. The witnesses were all men aged between 30 and 70. The other 18 testimonies, also of men, were gathered by Mojesh Tiraki, who interviewed people employed by Ejabat, including the wardens, vice-wardens and paymasters of some of her residences, as well as local judges and citizens. These accounts survive to this day, and together they suggest that Ejabat hurt and killed female servants, as well as the young women attending her gynecium. From the 34 testimonies gathered by Andras Kersturi, we learn that the Countess, quote, had killed or allowed to be killed approximately 200 virgins and women, end quote, and that during her own daughter's wedding celebration, quote, two virgins were so severely tormented and tortured that they died, end quote, an event to which a number of witnesses attested. Many testimonies reported excessive beatings, cruel tortures, and a variety of instances involving girls being bound, lashed, and then submerged into icy water or an icy river. Multiple accounts reported girls being whipped with nettles, their hands being burned so badly they had to be helped into a carriage, and bodies buried without funerals, sometimes alongside the road as Ejabet and her household progressed from one residence to another. From the 18 testimonies gathered by Tiraki, we learn that the warden of one castle said that at least 175 dead women and girls were taken out of the house. Although the warden did not know how the girls died, he said he did once see a wall covered in blood and heard beatings lasting for up to six hours, though he never saw who was being beaten. Other household members saw carts carrying dead girls leaving the castle reported there was a secret chamber or secret house where Erjabet had girls tortured. These same witnesses said there were rumours in the household of girls being burned with hot irons, of nails being hammered into fingers, as well as three girls being nailed into a coffin together. On one occasion, when parents asked where their daughter was, the witness reported how Erjabet lied and said the girl had died of typhoid. One account that will become particularly interesting comes from a noble who described how a minister confronted Ejabat about her actions while one day in church, saying the rumours of the death of a girl in her care offended God and the whole congregation would be punished if they did not criticise the countess. The minister suggested the situation could be remedied if the body of the girl was exhumed to look for any marks to identify how she died. The witness said Ejabat was extremely angered by the minister's comments, reporting she told him he would pay for denouncing her, that she had relatives who would not tolerate it. In reply, the minister apparently said, I have a relative, the Lord God. And frustratingly, the account ends there. In popularised accounts of the so-called Countess of Blood, 
Ejabat is described as having accomplices, and certainly in one testimony, a witness reports that Ejabat commanded her servants to torture girls. A second testimony mentions a servant by the name of Anna Dovaya, who came to live with Ejabet in 1601. Anna was already in the employ of Ferenc's family, and possibly moved in with Ejabet as a nanny. By 1601, Ejabet had had four children in six years. The witness states that the girls were tortured through a woman called Anna. Following the gathering of these witness testimonies, Judge Thurzo wrote to the king of Hungary about his findings and was given permission to arrest Ejabat. Accompanied by his soldiers, Thurzo entered Castle Cheta on the 29th of December, 1610. The following day, Thurzo wrote to his wife in the greatest haste, telling her how he had apprehended the Nadoshti woman. He explained that when my men entered Cheta, they found a girl dead in the house. Another followed in death as a result of many wounds and agonies. In addition, there was also a wounded and tortured woman there. The other victims were kept hidden away where this damned woman prepared these future martyrs. For a man who had once implored his daughter to be more like Ejabet, his letter marks a total voltfast. He sounds full of anguish and is desperate to get home and leave the scene of so much torture. If we take all that we have heard as true for a moment, and we'll come back to this important question, we have to ask, why on earth would Ejabet hurt and kill women? What was her motive? The extant evidence suggests that the Countess appeared to lash out at the girls in anger. For example, after Ejabet's arrest, many members of her household were also arrested and interrogated, and they talked of girls being attacked, quote, if they did not finish their stitchery, if they didn't take off their hair covering, if they did not start the fire, if they did not lay the apron straight. One girl was killed, quote, because she had stolen a pear, end quote. Why were medieval priests so worried that women were going to seduce men with fish that they'd kept in their pants? Who was the first gay activist? And what on earth does the expression sneezing in the cabbage mean? I'll tell you, it's not a cookery technique, that's for sure. Join me, Kate Lister, on Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast where we will be bed-hopping throughout time and civilization to bring you the quirkiest and kinkiest stories from history. As promised, there will be... Sex. Anne has said that Henry is not skillful in copulating with a woman <gasps> and has neither vigour nor potency. And scandal. Everybody just descends onto this crime scene and it's being pulled apart by members of the public sort of as quickly as they can excavate the bodies. And moments which shaped society. Pointy boobs then became a thing and were still a thing into the 1950s. What more could you possibly want? Listen to Betwixt the Sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. A podcast by History Hit. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Why Ejabet should experience such anger is difficult to know. We might speculate that having so much responsibility, with so many estates to manage, an absent husband and four children in the space of six years, would be incredibly stressful. But it is speculation, and it doesn't really go far enough to explain such murderous rage. I should add, I can find no evidence whatsoever to support one claim, that Ejabet was motivated by blood, as if she were some sort of bride at Dracula. According to these rumours, the death of her husband Ferenc in 1604 made Ejabet obsessed with her own ageing. A maid's blood was said to have splashed on her skin, and Ejabet thought she looked younger after the blood was washed off, and therefore became bent on bathing in blood to restore her youth, even establishing the gynecaeum to encourage young women to come into her household. This phony legend almost certainly comes from the centuries after Ejabet's death, when Gothic literature swept Europe and the Bartoli documents were first discovered. As for means and opportunity, was Ejabet capable of killing young women and did she have the chance? She would have needed both physical strength and the mental or emotional will to extinguish someone's life. It would, of course, have been physically possible, given that the alleged victims were all younger than her. Some historians estimate the girls were around 10 to 14 years old and that as a member of the nobility she required many serving girls. We also need to think of power relations. As a much older woman, employing these young girls, the power was all in her favour. She had the means and opportunity in that regard. There's also evidence that she had accomplices. Not only was Anna Davoya allegedly involved, so too were other members of Erzabet's household who were arrested on the same night as her. These included Janos Uvari, who worked for her for 16 years. Dortia Sentesh, who served her for five years, a nursemaid who worked for the Countess for ten years, and a laundress by the name of Katarina Benetsky, who was in her employ for ten years as well. The surviving testimonies of these individuals attest to how they assisted Erzabet in enticing girls to her court, torturing and killing them, and disposing of their bodies. The graphic details of these alleged accomplices are truly horrifying to read. 
Following the arrest, Elzebeth was confined to her castle for the rest of her life, while her accomplices were executed either by beheading or burning. I think we've probably heard quite enough about the terrible fate that is said to have befallen her victims, so let's turn to think critically about the evidence to support the allegations. The 52 witness statements taken in secret before Erzabet's arrest are problematic. The one thing that stands out is that not a single person witnessed Erzabet do anything bad at all. In nearly every single case, the accounts report that individuals heard things that rumours were in general circulation, that they had been told no one was an eyewitness. So although every deponent was an upstanding member of the community, a fact which is much laboured in each account, and they gave statements under oath, each of them reported no more than hearsay. Now, some of the testimonies corroborate each other, but I'm not convinced this makes the evidence more compelling. In fact, it's more likely that they corroborate each other because they're all based on similar rumours that were doing the rounds. Operating on the principle of no smoke without fire, rumours were admissible as evidence in the 16th century. But that doesn't make them true. The evidence of the Lutheran minister is a little more compelling, although we only get it through a third party. He was so sure of the rumours about Ejabat that... Apparently, he confronted her in church, demanding a body be exhumed. Two other witnesses reported this confrontation as well. And the minister wrote to the king of Hungary. And yet, I also have questions about this minister. One of the two people who witnessed the confrontation was a vice warden of one of the Batteries' castles. And he went on to explain that after the confrontation, Ejabat's husband returned very quickly from Vienna. So we know this is before Ejabat's husband died, whereupon the minister laid the burden on him. But, and I quote, it was not very long before the preacher and the count reconciled. Now, why would this minister, so willing to confront a member of the nobility in public, agree to reconcile? What was said between Ferenc and the minister? Had it all been a misunderstanding? The dramatic evidence from Tuzo's raid on Erzabet's castle on the 29th of December 1610 is harder to dismiss. He had no reason to lie when writing to his wife about what he witnessed that evening. And the girls who were found to be alive that night identified their attackers as widow Nadoshti and a woman called Katharina. Now, I can't think of a good reason why these women would falsely accuse Erzabet. However, while the account of that evening describes Erzabet being caught red-handed, she actually wasn't. Following her arrest, the Countess maintained her innocence and said her servants had been the perpetrators, explaining that she had been too afraid to stand up to them, and she never changed her story, despite four years of imprisonment until her death in 1614. What did the evidence from the members of Erzabet's household arrested that same night? The huge problem with their testimonies is that they were extracted under torture. Although this was thought in the 16th and 17th centuries to guarantee truth, today we know that the use of torture makes evidence highly unreliable. People will say what they think the Inquisitor wants to hear to make the pain stop. 
If we look at how the testimonies contain many corroborating details, including how the girls were brought to the castles, the methods of tortures, what happens to the bodies, we may be seeing that in action. There's no detail in the transcripts about what information inquisitors were feeding each person, the exact questions that were asked, or the exact nature of the answers that were given. Leading questions were quite common in this period. There may be good reasons why the accounts corroborate each other beyond them being true. In short, we know very little about how the accounts we have today were created. Lots of people were swearing to being witches under torture at this time. I'm not sure the evidence taken under torture convinces us that was true. Following Erzabat's arrest, further witnesses were sought, leading to another 224 depositions. Townspeople, nobles, clergy, court officials and servants drawn from across Erzabat's estates. That is a sizable number of people. But again, nearly every person reported what they had heard. Few had seen anything with their own eyes. There were a minority who had seen badly injured girls leaving castles, sometimes dead, sometimes alive but none had seen Erzabet or others physically committing these injuries. There were also one or two instances where relatives of the girls, such as a castle warden whose niece was with Erzabet, believed that the girls in Erzabet's employ were in grave danger. The castle warden reported that the countess had told him his niece had already escaped three times and that if she tried again, she would kill her. But is that just hyperbole? Were they fearful because of the rumours they had heard? Or were they getting direct evidence from the girls themselves? Another thing that is difficult to dismiss is the records of corpses of young women found by Thurzo in December 1610. Furthermore, we know from witness testimonies that local ministers were asked to perform burials of young women. One began to keep a record of bodies when his questions to the Countess about the funerals went unanswered. Another flatly refused to bury what he called the continuous stream of maidens who had died of unknown and mysterious causes. One evening, a minister wrote that he had buried no less than nine girls, and another found the bodies of mutilated girls in tunnels connecting his church with one of the countess's castles. These ministers also wrote to the King of Hungary, who received letters of concern from families whose daughters were missing. It seems clear to me that many girls died or went missing. Was this murder... Well, there is one other alternative. There were local outbreaks of plague and typhus. In one week in 1610, just before Erzabet's arrest, eight women died in Certa. Does this explain the disappearances? And there's a further set of questions that the evidence begs. First, why did anyone work for Erzabet or remain in her employment if she was such a monster? Second, when Erzabet set up the Gynaceum, why would well-to-do families continue to send their daughters there if other people's daughters were going missing? Third, if there were so many people who had heard terrible things about Erzabet, why did it take until 1610 for the alarm to be raised? The minister who I've reported as confronting her in the church did so at some time between 1602 and 1604. This relies on our third party accurately recording the date, but it's also before Erzabet's husband died. Similarly, one witness reported that an injured victim allegedly escaped with a knife in her foot. She was said to have told many people in the village that she would have died if she didn't flee and reported terrible atrocities. But we don't have the name of this young woman nor any investigation into what happened to her. Why? Can some of what we're learning today be explained by political intrigue? Is it possible that King Matyash of Hungary turned a blind eye to Erzabet at first, 
because not only was her husband a leading commander in the Habsburgs' fight against the Ottoman Turks, but also because she and her husband contributed significant sums of money to his war chest, as well as to that of his brother, the Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II. Going one step further, is it plausible that there was a design to the timing of the investigation into Erzsébet and her subsequent arrest? It was the Habsburgs who stood to gain in 1610 if Erzsébet was imprisoned or executed. Because having funded King Matthias's war chest, the Habsburgs owed Ferenc Nadosti a huge sum of money. When Ferenc died in 1604, his credit account passed to Erzsébet. In 17th century Hungary, those convicted of a crime forfeited their property to the royal treasury. So if the king of Hungary secured Erzsébet's conviction, he would gain her family's wealth, her property, and be rid of his greatest creditor. Another explanation for the timing of Erzsébet's arrest and trial relates to events in Transylvania. I mentioned earlier that the Bateri family dominated Transylvania, playing political chess with the Habsburgs and the Ottoman Turks. In 1608, the new prince of Transylvania was none other than Gabriel Bathory, who wanted to unite Hungary under one monarchy. His plan would have seriously undermined the power of the Habsburgs. If Gabriel could get help from his wealthy relative Ezebet and use her properties to halt Habsburg advance, Gabriel could realise his aim. The Habsburgs had a lot to gain from the downfall of the Bathory's from 1608. What then are we left with? In short, Erzsébet's story and its possible explanations feels almost impossible to decipher. We have unexplained missing girls and young women, as well as unexplained dead bodies. We have many accusations against Erzsébet and members of her household, but the veracity of those accusations is difficult to pin down. The evidence we have is hearsay, extracted under torture, probably in response to leading questions. We have a woman who maintained her innocence while some of her household confessed to their crimes and hers under torture. We have a complex political context in which a powerful family stood to benefit from the downfall of another powerful family. The timing of the final case feels deeply loaded. Perhaps the truth is somewhere in the middle. Perhaps there were cartloads of girls and women who had died as a result of an epidemic. This is hardly a period in which there aren't many of those. And yet... It feels like there must have been some level of abuse. I sound like a 16th or 17th century judge when I say, was there really no smoke without fire? Wasn't there something going on? There are just so many stories. Though, when one tries to grab at them, they do seem to disappear. Like the girl with the knife in her foot, who doesn't herself testify. The most convincing evidence of all comes from Judge Thurzo when he wrote that letter to his wife the next day saying that they had found a girl dead, another who had died because of wounds, and also a third wounded and tortured woman. That stuff is pretty compelling. Or was Thurzo also serving a political purpose? Was the abuse being carried out by Erzsébet? Or by her servants, as she claimed? Can we discount the hundreds of testimonies, even if most of them were only reporting rumour? Or was the entire thing worked up from small acts of anger and cruelty into a huge scandal, a narrative of death on such a grand scale and brutality so unfathomable that it was impossible to refute for some nefarious political scheme? For me, the more I look at it, 
the more obscure the case becomes. I would love to know your thoughts. Do you think Ejebet Bathory was a serial killer? my producer Rob Weinberg, my researcher Esther Arnott and Anisha Dever who edited this episode and thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects so drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.